Hello and welcome to episode number 158 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona, and this episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Tuesday, December 2nd, 2014. I hope everybody out there had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope you're going to have a great Christmas as it approaches. And this episode of the podcast is an interview with Dr. Ted Steinberg, and you will hear more about Dr. Steinberg and his writings in a moment. This is a two-part interview. I decided to break it up into two parts, and so it runs about half an hour. And I will be publishing the second part next week, so please stay tuned for that as well. Now, many of you who have listened to this podcast for a long time will know that I find history a fascinating subject and very informative on many of the things that affect us in this day and age. And I will say that ecological history is extremely important, and it's a topic I've featured on this podcast a number of times. And that will not stop, and you will see that that is the case with my interview with Dr. Ted Steinberg. So please enjoy this interview, and I hope you will tune in for next week's part two. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Dr. Ted Steinberg. Dr. Steinberg is the author of many books and a research scholar in history and ecology, Uh, His most recent book is Gotham Unbound, The Ecological History of Greater New York. Dr. Ted Steinberg, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thanks for having me here. Well, tell us a little bit about the background of this book. Um, What spurred you to think about these issues, and how did the book come about uh, in your mind? It's actually a very old uh, book project that goes back some 20, 25 years or so. I grew up in uh, in the New York area. I was born in Brooklyn. My family moved out to Long Island when I was a child. So part of the uh, inspiration for the book is just simple intellectual curiosity. Uh, but the primary motivation for a book of this kind uh, was simply the idea, uh, and that was this, that... Um, I want to look at uh, what happens when you uh, take around 19 million people and cram them into less than 1% of uh, the land area of the United States. What happens ecologically when you uh, take what's an estuary uh, and transform it into uh, one of the most massively engineered and altered environments uh, on the planet. So those were the major motivating factors uh, uh, that uh, led me to write uh, Gotham Unbound. And it seems like a concept that most people really don't even give that much consideration. Uh, that's correct. I mean, I think uh, with all the asphalt, steel, and concrete uh, that uh, weighs down the uh, landscape of greater New York, I think for most people, they, they really don't have any um, uh, understanding at all that they're living in the estuary of the the Hudson River. In fact, I'd be, I'd venture to say that uh, most uh, people living in New York probably couldn't even define uh, the word estuary. So um, it's important, uh, I think, um, uh, for uh, for New Yorkers to uh, to understand the uh, the ecology of the place in which they live their lives. So 
<clears throat> let's let's dive into that. Um, tell us what this area was like before it became this mega city. Um, describe this ecology for us, please. Well, an estuary is where freshwater and saltwater come together. These are incredibly rich, biologically speaking, environments, incredibly productive, uh, even more so than, uh, than agricultural land, uh, according to uh, some. Uh, as a result, uh, as you would kind of expect, um, there was enormous natural density uh, back in the early part of the 17th century when Henry Hudson came sailing into New York Harbor. Uh, so uh, what you like, what he likely found there, um, uh, enormous expanses of grass, uh, marsh grass uh, of one kind or another, underwater grass, uh, untold uh, miles and miles of uh, oyster beds, uh, forest, of course. Uh, so this kind of thing, enormous, as I say, natural uh, density uh, in the New York uh, metropolitan uh, area uh, back in the 17th century, and one of the interesting things about New York ecological history is that uh, density has been a kind of continuity instead of this uh, natural density that I've just told you about uh, with the oysters and the grasses and so forth, the forest and so on. Uh, what you have now in uh, New York is enormous, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, uh, unnatural density, which is to say uh, uh, a very large number of human beings. Uh, and then Manhattan itself, there's about 70,000 people per square mile. If you take a look uh, at the New York metropolitan area as a whole, uh, five of the uh, uh, the densest municipalities in the entire United, United States are located in the New York metropolitan area, not just uh, New York City, but uh, places like Union City, Guttenberg, uh, West New York, and Hoboken. So it's a very dense, dense place, dense with, uh, with human beings. And uh, ecologically speaking, um, there's uh, a, a similar kind of uh, uh, density going on, which is to say that uh, the species that uh, do well and flourish in today's New York are the ones that uh, thrive in close proximity to large numbers of people, so you see the ubiquitous uh, common reed or phragmites uh, all over the landscape. Uh, there are lots of um, uh, striped bass and Atlantic uh, herring uh, along the uh, hard boundary uh, that forms most of uh, the uh, shoreline of, uh, of Manhattan uh, and this kind of thing. So. Uh, we see the shift from a kind of uh, natural density to an unnatural uh, kind of density, but density is one of the great continuities uh, in New York ecological history. Well, I want to unpack this ecological shift a little bit in a little more detail. Um, now, as you described this pre-Columbian estuary that was very rich and diverse with biological life, um, there was also people living in this area. Can you tell us a little bit about who were actually the native inhabitants of uh, New York? Yeah, I mean the uh, the, the Lenape were the uh, were living here, of course, before uh, before Henry Hudson came uh, came through. And uh, I'm not an expert uh, in uh, Lenape life, but uh, I can tell you that they uh, unquestionably uh, uh, were. Uh, uh, making use of the uh, of the rich marine resources uh, that were found in the in the New York metropolitan area prior to the arrival of the 
uh, European colonists. Now, Manhattan was colonized by the Dutch, I believe, and this was um, part of the attraction, I imagine, was this rich biological life in the area. Is, is that correct? Well, uh, yes, the, the Dutch uh, uh, did colonize uh, New York uh, initially, uh, built uh, New Amsterdam. Uh, in fact, um, before uh, New Amsterdam were, was, was built, the Dutch settlers uh, actually occupied what was then called uh, Newton Island or Nut Island. Uh, we know it today as Governor's Island. They called it Nut Island because of all the... Uh, chestnut and uh, hickory trees that could be found on the island. So I, I dare say that uh, the uh, wealth of, uh, of nuts may have been an attraction uh, for the initial Dutch settlers. Uh, and then eventually the um, Dutch were looking for a, uh, an, an island environment that could be relatively easy, easily protected that was, of course, larger than uh, the small governor's uh, island or nut island that they initially settled and uh, Shortly thereafter, the move took place to to the island of Manhattan itself, which was, I might add, a much smaller landmass back then uh, than it uh, ultimately uh, would become today. So the Dutch were eventually pushed out by um, British colonists. Um, we don't have to go into too, too too much detail with that, but maybe talk a little bit about early colonial New York City. Um, how did that develop, and how did the ecology change? Well, the Dutch, first of all, one of the things that they did uh, that had uh, environmental implications was that they uh, built a canal down uh, what's today Broad Street in Lower Manhattan. Uh, and the idea there was to uh, facilitate uh, uh, commerce and also uh, to uh, help with drainage. But ultimately, what what was motivating this was the idea of kind of internalizing the uh, waterfront within the city of New Amsterdam, town of New Amsterdam itself. So uh, the Dutch engaged, in other words, in some modest attempts to uh, control the natural environment. But in the latter part of the 1600s, after the uh, British took control of New York, they staked out a much more aggressive approach in their relations with both land and sea. And what I mean by that is that um, the Brits uh, didn't only just bring with them the concept of private property, the idea of using land as a tool for accumulating capital. That uh, idea could be found all throughout the colonies uh, in North America. Uh, What the Brits in New York did uh, was to uh, actually bring uh, into being uh, a market in land underwater uh, through a series of grants uh, made by the crown to the city of New York, the the crown conveyed to the city, uh, title to land underwater, originally to the low water mark around the southern part of Manhattan, and then about 45 years later in the early part of the 18th century, 400 feet beyond the low water mark, uh, around the southern part of the island, essentially creating a market in underwater land that the city of New York then doled out to uh, wealthy merchants and better-off artisans who turned around and then filled in this land underwater with 
whatever they could find to do so and created more land. So what's uh, significant about uh, uh, the colonial period, at least uh, under the British was the creation of this idea uh, that land wasn't even, even a fixed resource, that uh, more of it could be made. Uh, and this was truly a radical idea uh, in the sense that uh, never on this spot in North America had the idea of uh, expanding and radically changing the geography of the island uh, existed. And this was an idea that uh, laid the uh, groundwork for the uh, later idea uh, of New York as a kind of limitless proposition that it can continue to grow and grow in terms of its population, land values, and its relations with, uh, with the sea. What was it about this location that made this um, seemingly historical imperative a reality? I mean... There are many other places in North America that did not experience this type of growth or even on the eastern seaboard, yet this one spot seems like this locus of, on the one hand, innovation, but also, you know, some pretty extreme engineering. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the argument is often made that uh, geography was destiny in in New York, and I think uh, the idea here is... uh, simply that uh, uh, the island of Manhattan is uh, located uh, at the uh, outlet of a very large river, the Hudson River. There is deep water near uh, to the shore of the uh, island. It's not too far, 20 miles or so uh, uh, from uh, lower Manhattan uh, to uh, the open uh, ocean in the Atlantic. Uh, It's protected uh, and well-sheltered because of the... existence of Sandy Hook and, and uh, uh, the uh, barrier islands uh, off of uh, Long Island. For all these reasons, uh, the argument has been trotted out that uh, geography is destiny in, in New York and that it, uh, that the, these geographic factors help explain uh, why New York became the great city that uh, it became. And it, it is true that uh, New York has been you know, has been the largest city in the United States for the last 200 years. But what Gotham on Down argues is actually, in some sense, the reverse of this idea that geography is destiny. What I'm mostly focused on is the way in which uh, geography is not a static concept at all. In, if you go back and look at the, at the history of New York, that in, in fact... Uh, the powers that be are actually changing the geography of Manhattan, dramatically so. I mean, between the early 19th century and 1980, some 147 square miles of what had been uh, marshland and open water was transformed or filled in in one way or another. And 147 square miles is the equivalent of about seven times the entire size of the island of Manhattan as it exists today. So was a massive alteration of the landscape, a reworking of New York's geography uh, for various uh, ends, many of them, of course, commercial uh, in orientation. So uh, the book is uh, in some ways a response to those who think of geography as, as destiny. So there is at least some truth in this concept. I mean, many of the points that you name in terms of this geography as destiny thesis but there's also this concept of, um, you know, people, just the momentum of commerce and the momentum of these densities of people just building on top of itself. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there is something to the idea uh, that uh, density creates clearly a kind of vibrant uh, life, and it can be related, I suppose, it it certainly is by some economists and others, uh, to innovation, uh, and that there's a momentum that that comes out of this. Um, You can, some, you know, you even very simply feel that when you come out of the subway in in New York City. I mean, it is a kind of... uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's, it's the kind of experience that uh, can 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 energize uh, just about anyone, I suppose, uh, who uh, is interested in or cares about city life. Uh, so there is there is definitely something to this. But what I'm interested in this uh, in, in this book, at least, is you know, what are the limits to this kind of density? I mean, there's there, there's clearly value uh, in density in uh, large numbers of people living together in uh, one small spot on the globe. The argument's even been made um, uh, repeatedly uh, and uh, most recently by uh, the Bloomberg administration when it was in power that um, there's ecological value, environmental value at least, in in New York's density in the sense that uh, people that live in urban environments like New York, very dense environments, uh, tend to have a lower per capita carbon footprint than people living in rural areas, say, like uh, Vermont. Uh, and the reason for that is, is is really kind of simple. If you think about it, I mean, people who live in urban areas are uh, likely to walk to work, take public transportation, and live in apartments with shared walls, uh, whereas people living in Vermont, in a shack, eating organic carrots, um, and then might have to go to the dentist, climb in their car, and drive 150 miles or something like that round trip. So you can easily see how, uh, per, on a per capita basis at least, um, uh, carbon emissions would be lower in a hyperdense place like Manhattan where there are 70,000 or more people per square mile. But th- that's not the whole story, which is to say that it's a bit of a stretch to argue uh, that uh, Manhattan is some sort of green dream uh, when it comes to relations with the natural world. And I say that because uh, global warming is not the only problem that New York, much less the world, faces. And if you look at the ecological history of New York, what you find is that uh, the creation of this enormously dense environment, uh, which isn't, I, I agree, very special, uh, certainly culturally uh, and, and otherwise, uh, it's had an enormous impact. Uh, on habitat change, uh, the decline in uh, uh, wetland complexes throughout the New York area has been uh, astonishing, really, incredibly dramatic. Uh, It's also uh, the creation of this dense um, uh, environment uh, in this one spot on the globe also has caused uh, uh, problems with respect to water quality and, of course, the issue of coastal flooding, putting all these people in, uh, in an environment that especially in a world facing uh, rising sea levels, uh, places them at risk. So from a global perspective, uh, from the perspective of global ecological issues, you could argue that that New York is a good thing with respect to global warming. Uh, From a local ecological perspective, the story is a lot more complicated. Can you unpack a little bit uh, about um, what happened with the ecology of New York as industrialization took hold around the country, and I mean, you particularly see this in the metropolitan area of New York with the creation of the subway and the steam system and all the other 
types of engineering efforts that went on. Can you um, unpack this for us a little bit as well? Well, the story of New York in the 19th century, the ecological story of New York, actually um, has to do with the creation of the conditions so that uh, not just industry, but that all these people could thrive on uh, uh, in, in an island environment. And in the island of Manhattan, uh, of course, uh, was filled with uh, streams and uh, ponds, small ponds, including one in the lower part of Manhattan around where City Hall is today. Um, that, if you just, if the island were simply to have um, relied on the natural sources of water, uh, the population of New York uh, and the industry that it, and manufacturing that eventually came to uh, that emerged there uh, would have been just uh, a fraction, a very small fraction of what it ultimately became in the uh, in the 19th century. Which is to say that New York, which passed the one million mark in terms of population in the 1870s, could never have reached that point and could never have industrialized the way that it did without the importation of uh, water from outside the island of Manhattan itself. So uh, this was a, a major turning point in, in New York's history in the 1840s when the city turned to the Croton watershed in Westchester uh, to uh, bring water uh, from uh, there uh, onto the island of Manhattan. Of course, from there, uh, New York expanded uh, and up to the, the Catskills and eventually the Delaware watershed, uh, bringing ultimately uh, billions of gallons of water all coursing into New York and helping to underwrite the explosive population growth and density that um, uh, we now uh, see in this uh, area, as well, as, of course, as the industrialization of the, uh, of the island itself. Did the creation of these underground transport networks create an entire underground ecology in itself? Well, um, the uh, you're talking about the building of, uh, of subways and things of this uh, of this nature. Well, I imagine there's creatures that live in these subways, and there's some yeah. sort of ecosystem down there. Um, I've not studied that. Uh, an ecological, I mean, that would be a different topic. An ecological history of underground New York. I mean, you're right. I mean, there's enormous transformation of of of, of the underground going on here. But what I can tell you is that uh, there's not a lot of room down there anymore. And that's a problem in the sense that, um, especially with respect to uh, uh, finding places for wastewater and overflow, sewer overflows, uh, which is a, a major problem facing New York in terms of water quality. There's some 450-odd uh, combined sewer overflows uh, a year on average in uh, in New York City, and what to do with all this water is uh, a, a, a problem, a dilemma that the city continues to face. And one idea would be to build some sort of containment system, but there's no room underground to to do that kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, whatever is going on ecologically underground, and I can't really speak to that because I've not studied it in any detail. Uh, one thing I can tell you is that there's just not a lot of room down there. Well, one of the things that's notable about New York is that while there are many of these ecological um, shortcomings, as you point out, 
there was also a tremendous amount of foresight in the creation of the city. Uh, I was there with my family a few weeks ago, and the existence of Central Park is really a marvel. I mean, when you compare it to something like Los Angeles, where no such thing exists, um, talk a little bit about the foresight of planners in allowing people some access to nature. Well, New York actually has a uh, today uh, a significant amount of of open space, surprisingly so, really something like seventeen, eighteen percent of the entire land area of New York, which is about three hundred square miles. Uh, so it would be seventeen or eighteen, whatever it is, percent of of three hundred square miles is is open space in New York. So in that sense, yes, I mean New York is is rich uh, in open space uh, relative to to other parts of. Uh, or other cities uh, in, in the world today, and it, that is a, a, a remarkable achievement in many ways. Uh, that's the positive. However, the negative uh, side to that story is this. Um, from an ecological perspective, uh, the question is, well, how much of that uh, open space is uh, space that is uh, ecologically, uh, an ecologically positive you know, set of places, and and that's actually a lot smaller because of the fragmentation uh, of of much of this space. Which is to say that uh, in terms of species richness uh, and other measures of uh, ecological health, um, New York is not in as good a shape as as it could be. For example, if if that uh, open space were um, designed in a way that it wasn't so fragmented. So the foresight you turn, you're referring to is perhaps not quite as far-seeing as you might think. Well, the people who planned the city originally, who designated you know Central Park to be open space, um, I do cut them a little slack. They, they probably didn't understand the concept of habitat fra- fragmentation that is oh, no, you know commonly discussed yeah, today. No, uh, you know, that that that's all true. I mean, you wouldn't want to. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to criticize their them on those on those grounds. I'm just saying the result of it was that uh, uh, in the end, uh, a uh, a place that from an ecological perspective, and only that perspective alone, I suppose, is is somewhat lacking. Is it too late to really be able to do anything about that? Probably, yeah. I, I mean, uh, I mean, it, the environment is so dense. I mean, land is so scarce now that it's difficult. However, I mean, you know, even in places that um, uh, we think about, like uh, uh, Fresh Kills, w- which was a, uh, a, a wetland and was, in fact, transformed over the course of, you know, really just, a, you know, what, 20 or 30 years into a, a set of mountains today, uh, it's now uh, being transformed into a, into a city park, uh, essentially open space. And it's going to take some time for, for all that to happen. But um, and, and in fact, Staten Island is, is full of, uh, of open space, even though it's, it's often, as a borough, written off as a kind of laughing stock. But the reality is, in terms of natural beauty and open space, that's the borough to, uh, to head for. Did the process of industrialization uh create extinction of a lot of niche species in this unique environment? Um, well, it wasn't so much, uh, uh, I mean, yes, industrialization, d- depending on what you mean by that exactly, has ecological consequences. Um, it, what's interesting about New York is that um, the uh, creation of that water supply that uh, I, I mentioned earlier in our talk 
uh, that had enormous consequences in terms of species and species extinction. Uh, Teredo novalis, which is a, a, a the sea worm, a, a, an invasive species that was brought to uh, North America or this part of North America, at least in the ballast of ships back likely in the in the colonial period, and thrived there around uh, New York. Um, they, they call them shipworms because they burrow into uh, you know, wooden pilings. Um, these uh, uh, these worms, uh, which existed in the early part of the uh, 19th century, and there were lots of lots of complaints actually about about the sea worms, uh, were driven to extinction by uh, the middle of the uh, of the 19th century uh, because of the um, uh, decline in oxygen saturation that occurred with um, uh, the creation of uh, rudimentary sewage systems to uh, handle all the wastewater uh, that was, of course, coursing out of New York uh, as more and more fixtures were, were, were being put in place there. Uh, the wastewater is laden and rich with, um, with nutrients like uh, nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, which sounds like a good thing, but in fact is uh, problematic uh, if it's if it's going into uh, um, into the water itself, where it leads to uh, um, over fertilization and decline in uh, oxygen, uh, which can compromise marine life, such as the uh, the sea worm, which was literally uh, driven to extinction. So, uh, in other words, uh, an, uh, an invasive non-indigenous species brought to the uh, uh, to New York uh, by the colonists was eventually driven. Uh, uh, to extinction uh, by uh, their uh, descendants in the 19th century. Well, I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to Harbor Island, which is in Westchester County, and, um, you know, you couldn't go in the water. We could just hang out on the beach and play in the sand, but we couldn't go in the water because it was so dirty from uh, sewage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that and that's, continues to be... be a problem in, in in New York to this very day. I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a reason the Guanas Canal you know, looks like it does. Uh, so, is there any uh, ecologist who actually studies the ecosystem processes in a place like New York City? Um, you know, there are species that exist in this environment, whether they be rats or pigeons or you know maybe even some other small mammals, and certainly lots of plants. Are is there anybody who's actually uh, dedicating their research career to stu- studying these ecosystem processes. Oh, absolutely! I mean, there's lots of people that are that are doing uh, this, this kind of work on in urban ecology. That's the the area of um, of scholarship uh, uh, that that we're talking about here. And there's certainly lots of uh, scientists that are examining precisely uh, these these sorts of things and trying to. Uh, make assessments uh, with respect to uh, to species richness, which, um, at least uh, from what I can tell, uh, is has been compromised uh, significantly uh, in you know in recent uh, recent decades. That concludes part one of my interview with Dr. Ted Steinberg. Next week I will be publishing part two. And in that, we will get into the details of New York's current situation vis-a-vis climate change, rising sea levels, and the current infrastructure and investments that are required in the future and the present and what that means for the future of New York City. 
So please stay tuned for that. It is a fascinating conversation, and it is definitely worthwhile. I'd like to thank Solar Bob, who was on a previous episode of the podcast recently, for giving me the idea to interview Dr. Steinberg. Uh, when I was in New York City, he sent me a link to his webpage and to his book, and I really thought it would be a great topic for a podcast interview. So thank you, Solar Bob, for that. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I am your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.